From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. And Rome understood immediately this wasn't a sort of a Jewish joke. They were saying, to put it bluntly, our guy is and your guy ain't the son of God. So the question then you'd have to ask, of course, and that opens up the entire New Testament, is what's the difference? Is Caesar as God, Jesus as God? If the as it were on the campaign trail, what's their platform? What's their program? What's their vision? Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. I'm delighted to welcome back today our guest, John Dominic Crossan, Professor Emeritus at DePaul University, a person who is widely regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He is the author of several best-selling books, including How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, The Historical Jesus, God and Empire, Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography, The Greatest Prayer, and The Power of Parable. He lives in Mineola, Florida with his wife, Sarah. Today, we're talking about his recent book, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. John Dominic Crossan, I'm delighted to welcome you back to Things Not Seen. And David, it's a pleasure to be with you and to be connected with Chicago once again. Well, I want to start our conversation in a bit of an odd place with an object, and it's actually an object that we find on the cover of your book, Render Unto Caesar, and also in one of the early chapters. It's a coin, and this coin plays into one of the interactions that is attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, where he is being offered a coin and being asked, okay, what should we do in terms of paying the tax? And you begin to look at this coin and ask, not just what did Jesus do with the coin, but what kind of coin was it? And I, I would invite you to bring my listeners into that conversation. What are we talking about when we're talking about this particular coin that you're looking at? All right. And let me start with a warning, David. Very often we hear render unto Caesar, things are Caesar, and as if it was an aphorism, as if it was a one-liner like a blesser of the poor. It's not. It's the punchline of an interaction, the punchline of an incident. So you have to read the whole thing. Jesus challenged to say, should we give tribute to Caesar or not? It's an explosive question. It really is. If he says yes, then of course he's going to have a lot of people who are you know, no, against Caesar say, no, forget him then. If he says no, that's high treason or low treason or whatever you want to call it. So it's, it's a trick question. In one sense, Jesus answers on a trick level. He doesn't carry the coin. Show me the coin. Now, that's one level. I mean, he puts them on the spot. I don't carry the coin, so how can I pay it if I don't have it? Anyway, but then they show the coin. Now, he asks them whose inscription, whose image and inscription. Let me emphasize, inscription. So we have to ask, if you're thinking, and that's always the danger when you're reading the Bible, <laughs> not thinking, what coin are we imagining? What coin makes sense of what Jesus says? Now, it's been debated, one coin, if you go to Jerusalem, they'll, they'll send you copies of a Tiberius's silver denarius, which is a one day's pay, roughly. But it's in Latin, and it's in abbre abbreviated Latin. So it's also about the size of a dime. I have a copy. <laughs> they sold me a copy years ago. You know, you can barely read it. I can't read the, the abbreviated Latin on it. I don't see much sense of showing that to Jesus I, I don't know who can read the inscription of abbreviated Latin, unless you know Latin, of course. So I think it is, and this is not original with me, uh, this is a certain numismatist who's convinced me that it's the Greek tetram. It's, it would be like four denarians. It's four times the one of the other, but it's written in Greek. And here's what it says in Greek. Three terribly simple words in Greek. Theos, Sebastos, Kaiser. Caesar's God. Now, if you're presented with a coin that says Caesar with God, and your response is, 
give Caesar his stuff, give God God's stuff, you are refusing the equation that's offered to you and demanding a separation. Now, it's both very clever, but very clear. It doesn't really answer, do you pay or not? But he's offered an equation, Caesar is God, so of course you do. <laughs> and he says, no, the things of God and the things of Caesar are separate. Now, that's a challenge. And it is a challenge, of course, for first Christians, first century Christians, I mean, or 21st century Christians, because they and we all live under God and Caesar. So that's a lovely theory. We separate them. Please, Jesus, how do I do it? If Caesar has the legions and God only has the angels, wouldn't it be safer maybe to go <laughs> with, with Caesar and the legions? So that's the challenge of the book. If you separate them, how then, now, ever, always do you get to live under them? Let me take a quick moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Dominic Crossan, and we're talking about his recent book, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christian Culture in the New Testament. And I really want to dig into this because, one, it's the jumping-off point for the logic of your book, Render Unto Caesar, but also when you talked about this Greek tetram as opposed to the Roman denarii, it, it opened up for me suddenly connections theologically that I had never thought about before. There's an image of the emperor, and it says, basically, Caesar is God. Caesar is revered as God. And immediately when you lined that out, I was like, oh my goodness, this is about idolatry, among other things. And it's a question of, if you acknowledge that the coin even says that, and the, you, Jesus is flipping the question around and saying, now are you also idolaters? Now, when I make that connection, am I drawing too many conclusions out of this simple coin, or am I thinking in the right direction? No, no. The reason it is so simple, God is Caesar for the bluntie and the coin, is because everyone in the Roman Empire knows it. It's not like, oh, wow, I never thought of that new idea. The, how would I put this? The job description for a human being, now Caesar Augustus was a human being. People could plan to assassinate him like they did his adopted father, Julius Caesar. The job description of a human being who is considered divine in the first century. Now, you and I might say, we, we, we don't think like that. Forget it. Just a little counter. A little, in, let me see, a little intercultural respect for a moment. This is their language. If somebody is a human being and of them something of extraordinary value for the human race, at least for our human race, Caesar had, Augustus had brought peace after 20 years of savage civil war. Imagine ours going on for 20 years, not, not just four. Savage civil war with legions on both sides. He brought peace. If that isn't a manifestation of the divine, if he's not God incarnate, what do we need them for? Bringing peace on earth, what could be better than the Pax Romana? He's declared divine even right before he dies. Horace is amazed that others we wait till they die and are safely off to heaven. He we consider divine. Now, we have to respect it in the first century, whether we like it or not, or think it's absurd or not, Caesar was considered a manifestation of the divine. And therefore, of course, when certain people began to say that a Jewish peasant from the Nazareth Bridge in Galilee, of all places, not from the Palatine Hill in Rome, was the Son of God, God incarnate. This has to be, a Roman might say, Saturday Night Live on the Tiber, a joke, a big joke. <laughs> Jesus is God. But it's also high treason. And Rome understood immediately. This wasn't a sort of a Jewish joke. They were saying, to put it bluntly, our guy is and your guy ain't the son of God. So the question then you'd have to ask, of course, and that opens up the entire New Testament, is what's the difference? What is Caesar as God, Jesus as God, if the court, as it were, on the campaign trail, what's their platform? What's their program? What's their vision? So that, of course, is interest the whole New Testament, not just um, any part of it. But that's the background. Without that matrix, people worry, how could people say Jesus was God? Wasn't he human? I would say, please go back to the first century and understand what's going on. We might not use that language. I don't know what we do with Jesus. 
given the Nobel Peace Prize or something. But that's their language for saying somebody who has done something of extraordinary transcendental value for the human race. And therefore manifested some aspect of God. Well, and this becomes then the logic that undergirds your entire book, Render Unto Caesar, because this coin, when it's offered, presents to us, if you will, theology and culture, and an argument about theology, an argument about culture, and an argument about how the two should be separated or mixed. And you offer then two models from within the New Testament. One is the model of the book of Revelation, and the other is the model of the duality that we call Luke-Acts, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. And then towards the conclusion, you offer a third, if you will, extra-canonical way of understanding this. So I want to get into all of those pieces, but why don't we begin by just talking about the logic of that tripartite separation itself? You looked at this coin, you saw the question, and you said the natural way to answer that question is with these three parts. What was it that drew you to Revelation, Luke-Acts, and then a third option as a way of setting the stage that we'll then get into in the conversation? I had been thinking about the dialectic or contradiction between Revelation and Luke-Acts all by itself, to be honest, by itself. And I even thought when I first wrote this book, I might call it Future Vision, and just those two glimpses of the future. And it was my own editor who said, no, 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 no. The obvious thing here is call it render unto Caesar. Now, he didn't bring up the coin. As soon as I heard that, I said, oh, you're right, of course. Now, the easy part, in a way, was presenting Revelation and Lukacs. We'll get to that in a minute. But then having done that, of course, I didn't want to leave people hanging. But why go into the New Testament and pick up another one? You know, you've just shown they're too contradictory. So if I said, well, we talk about the historical Jesus, well, you could say, well, you can go in there and find whatever you want. This is hopeless. Let's just quit. So the discipline was to start, and I want to underline the word start outside the New Testament with the third category, the start, not the finish. And so I said, okay, suppose we went into Josephus in the first century who mentions Christ twice. And John the Baptist once and James of Jerusalem once. He doesn't mention Peter or Paul, by the way. So what if I went in there? Leave aside the gospel. Now, I really am, though some reviewers have said I'm dismissing the gospel in favor of Josephus. Since I spent about two chapters warning people how to read Josephus, be even more careful about reading Josephus than about Revelation or Luke Acts, because he hides his bias. Revelation, it's right out in the open. You can see it. Um, Josephus is acting very prudently. He is, how would I put it? He was a general in charge of the Galilee in the Great War of 66 or 74, who went over to the Roman side theologically. He claimed Vespasian was the Messiah. I mean, I can forgive him for that, but not that one. So you have to Understand, I begin with Josephus in that third part. And then I say, granted what I see from Josephus, does it or does it not cohere with the gospel? So it's no way preferring Josephus to the gospel. It really isn't. But it is saying the gospel should be situated in this matrix. It's the general logic of the book. Well, and we'll be getting into that. And we've got about a minute left before we go out to our first break. And so you've mentioned just briefly that some people have been pushing back against this. I wonder if you could maybe characterize for my listeners just briefly, what are some of the the main points that people are getting wrong about your book, Render Under Caesar, so far? Actually, if you ever look up Amazon, I just got a very nice review on one level to give me four stars. But then the description of the book, I think I would only give myself one star if that was right. The heading was something extra canonical against canonical in a way. It was the, the, it talked about the gospel of history. That's not what I'm doing at all. I, I am not going to the extra canonicals of preference. That would be absurd. But I am insisting that you do them both like a dialectic. So to understand the book, it has to be explained the way I just did. I go to Josephus first, and then I go to the gospel. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're delighted to be welcoming back our guest, John Dominic Crossan, Professor Emeritus at DePaul University and widely regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He's the author of numerous best-selling books, and today we're talking about his most recent one, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Dominic Crossan, Professor Emeritus at DePaul University and widely regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He's the author of several best-selling books, including How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, The Historical Jesus, God and Empire, and Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography. Today we're talking about his recent book, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. In our last segment, we talked about the logic that really undergirds your book, Render Unto Caesar, looking at this division of theology and culture and asking the question, how should they be mixed or separated? And then you present within the book sort of three typologies for doing that that are related to the New Testament. The first typology you pick is to look at the book of Revelation. And I I teach New Testament every once in a while, and I have students that come to me and say, we really want to understand this book. We we really want to unlock this book. I've often been scared or frustrated at my attempts to do that in the classroom. One of the things that I appreciated, particularly about the two chapters that you really devote for close attention to the book of Revelation, was how much more I understood the mechanics, the logic, and the polemics in the book of Revelation much more than I did before. So I want to commend it to anyone who is thinking, well, maybe this book isn't interesting to me. You learn a ton about just the basic questions of reading books of the Bible by coming to your book, Render Unto Caesar. But I wonder if we can talk a little bit about the book of Revelation. It's attributed to a man named John of Patmos, and you outline that John has a particular way of looking at the communities and the relationship of these communities to the Roman Empire. So maybe let's start there. Begin to outline for us what that is. And I really spent almost a whole year just on the book of Revelation myself, because I wanted to understand it, not to dismiss it. It's easy to say it's a wash in blood and forget it. Here is the thesis. Here's the theme. And if you read through the book of Revelation and you think it's like a, a sequential story, your head starts to spin. Seven bowls, seven this, this, seven that, seven the other. Your head is supposed to spin, by the way. I, John, in a way, doesn't want you to think too clearly about this. He wants you to get a message. So he's going to beat it into you. Here's the message. In the immediate past, Rome has slaughtered, I'm using that word, the slaughtered Christians. Therefore, in the imminent future, soon, in the imminent future, Christ will return to slaughter Romans. Now, it's a terribly clear message. And it appeals in a way to our sense of, if you want to say revenge or retributive justice, if this has been, do- if Rome has been slaughtering Christians, wouldn't it be fair enough? for Christ to come and do some counter-slaughter. Now, here's the problem. And this is the modern scholarly problem in the book of Revelation. It was accepted in the past that, well, John is written, John of Patmos is writing in the reign of Domitian, say in the 90s of the first century. I agree, that's the consensus. Therefore, of course, there must have been massive persecution of Christians under Domitian. John says so, we take it. Slowly but surely, Scholars have been saying, well, wait a minute. We have no evidence outside John of Patmos that Domitian did anything like this. In fact, there's no program that we know of as imperial policy, not starting, not talking about little no, local nastiness in the street, but there's no policy or program of imperial persecution of Christians until about the year 250. How can he make, be making this claim? 
And there's evidence, lots of evidence, that it didn't happen. Not just no evidence about it. For example, uh, Ignatius of Antioch is traveling to Rome, as you well know, under a guard to, to be put to death in the arena. He travels in the same areas, speaks to many of the same churches, never even mentions they were persecuted. He's just worrying about being your bishop. And also, um, Pliny the Younger runs into Christians in around maybe 112 or something. He doesn't even know who they are. He has the right to the emperor, what to do with them. So this idea of a massive imperial persecution, I think is just historically wrong. In the blunt language, is it? It's fake news. <laughs> well, and if I'm hearing you correctly, he's creating this fiction. And so then the natural question is, why? Qui bono? Who benefits from yeah. this fiction? Now, you got it exactly. Once you accept that, you'll say, well, why would he do it? That's where I'd spend my time. Why would he make it up? Okay, he doesn't like Romans. I think the clue is when you watch, he never mentions allegiance, but he mentions merchants a lot. And here's where we have to look very, very carefully and slow down the focus. John of Patmos sees, I'm going to use the phrase, Mediterranean globalization. Now, I'm not just using a modern term to be with it. Mediterranean globalization was what Roman imperialism was about. They were just interested in grabbing country and making a nice little circle around the Mediterranean. And so Israel, the, the Levantine coast, this globalization, it really is. It's the Roman Empire as a <laughs> United Nations market, as it were. And the military's on the periphery, military's on the Rhine, the Danube, the Euphrates. And inside that, everything is booming. I think Augustus might have said, it's the economy, dummy. Now, here's what horrifies John of Patmos. There are people in these great cities he's writing to, Ephesus, for example, or Sardis or Smyrna, and the, uh, the rich cities of Asia Minor. And they're saying to themselves, I don't see why I can't be a good Christian and a good Roman. What's wrong with business doing business with Rome? So he makes Rome, which is the center of this Mediterranean globalization. He describes it in pornographic language as the great brothel of the Mediterranean. Of course, merchants are going backwards and forwards. So he's really more after the danger of attraction from within than oppression from without. Merchants, not legions. So he sees this as not just the thin edge of the wedge, but that actually for him, merchandise, business, commerce with the Roman Empire is Roman civilization and culture. He doesn't think you can distinguish them. If I was a good, pious Christian in Ephesus, and I have, say, an olive oil business, and I'm sending it in, and my business is booming because I'm not just selling it locally, I'm sending it across the Roman Empire. And I said, but, but I'm a good Christian, John. What, what's, what's wrong with that? That's what John is after. Now, he doesn't have really good arguments because if I'm arguing with him, because actually this is where the future is, I'm going to say, well, I am, I'm not, I don't think Caesar is God. I don't think anything. He's just protecting the business, the trade routes. No one. So John, to be, is, we call him an extremist today, to be honest with you. And there's no evidence that I can see that all of these cities accepted it. There really isn't. So he's using an extreme argument. That's why he keeps hitting you. Blood, 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 slaughter, soon. So that you don't have time to think. He really doesn't want you to have time to think, well, wait a minute, though. why couldn't we? Paul had to answer the same question, by the way. Could you go into business? And what if you're invited, if, you're, if the business partner was a big shot and he invited you to come to the temple for a feast, could you go? Could you eat? Well, and we'll get to Paul in just a moment, but I want to make sure that my listeners have understood this. So in service of this almost Levitical, this Leviticus 19 desire to keep separate from Roman culture, particularly Roman mercantile culture, what I'm hearing you saying is that the writer of Revelation invents a noble lie, for want of a better phrase. And that's my phrase, not yours, so feel free to correct it. But a noble lie about the slaughter of Christians in the recent past in order to give the logic that God will bring 
disastrous retribution against the Romans in the near future, and you don't want to have anything to do with the Romans because you'll be swept up in that slaughter. I just want to make sure, have I heard the mechanics correctly? That is perfect. It is so brutally cruel, so fatally (laughs) damned, so soon to be removed, and so idolatrously blasphemous and obscene and pornographic. So why would you want anything to do with it? Why would you even want to touch it? It's like touching tar. You'll be contaminated. Yeah, that's the message. Well, let me take a moment and reintroduce you. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and I'm delighted to be welcoming back our guest, John Dominic Crossan, Professor Emeritus at DePaul University and widely regarded as one of the foremost historical Jesus scholars of our time. He's written a number of books. We're talking today about his most recent one, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. Well, let's turn now, you've already made the gesture in this direction, to Paul, and in particular, the book Luke-Acts, where a certain type of reading of the Gospels is offered, but also then a a reading of the way that the early church operates. And it has a very different logic about the relationship and differentiation of theology and culture, faith and culture, than we saw in the book of Revelation. Start to talk to us about that contrast. Yeah, I, I summarize civilization or acculturation as demonized in Revelation, and I'm now going to say it as canonized, because let me use the word Luke, it's the conventionist, the person we, we imagine writing both of those volumes. Let's imagine he looks into the future, and actually he's the only one in the entire New Testament, whether you like it or not, who sees the future, and the future for Luke acts is Roman Christianity, not Jewish Christianity. Paul would be turning over in this grave screaming. It's not Jewish Christianity. It's Roman Christianity. Now, here's where you have to begin, though. It, it's really a question simply of logistics. If I was to offer my uh, editor today a thousand-page book, a thousand, not manuscript, but a thousand pages, first of all, he'd say, get lost. But supposing he didn't, he would say immediately, look, if you're going to do a thousand pages, we have to have a box set. We have to have two volumes. You can't put a thousand page book of it. It'll have to be that same. So you're the same in the first century. If you wanted to write, say, the letter of Mark or Matthew or John, you can do it in one scroll. About 15,000, words. It'll fit in one scroll. Go down to Barnes and Noble on the Tiber and order yourself an empty scroll and off you go. Now, if you want to do it much longer, you'll have to go into two scrolls. Josephus has one scroll for his life, two scrolls for his work against Appian, seven for the Jewish war, and 20 for the Jewish tigris. It's just about logistics. Now, you should remember that the Latin word, by the way, for a scroll is a volumen, volumes. So there is somebody, let's call him Luke, who has a very long gospel. <laughs> it's much longer than the other three, if he knows about the meeting. And he needs two volumes for it. There's nothing mysterious about it. There's nothing to, oh, this is the first, this is the second. He has two nicely balanced volumes. Unfortunately, from a historical point of view, at least, whatever about theology, but I think also theologically, when people were assembling the New Testament, they decided to put Luke here. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then they called it the Acts of the Apostles. So the names put on it, these are not the names given, of course, but the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. Every scholar that I know says Luke wrote both of them, or at least the same author wrote both of them. The same author wrote both of them. And when he was writing the second one, he connected back to the first one. Now that leaves us with the huge scholarly problem. Is the second volume simply like a sequel written years later? As if I wrote a book very well received, and then Harper told me, why don't you write a sequel to it? You know, you can refer back to it um, in a way like <laughs> render unto Caesar was God and referring to God and Emperor. I could refer back, couldn't refer forward. So I know this is long-winded, and some of people read and say, oh, I got lost in there. But I have to convince you that the author of Luke Acts conceived, composed, wrote, and published a two volume work. And if I'm hearing you correctly, 
the, the logic of that two-volume work in contrast to the book of Revelation is it's not that Rome is to be rejected, but rather Rome is the path forward. We're moving from Jerusalem to Rome in the logic of Luke Acts. And that those are my words, not yours. Have I heard that correctly? Nope, you're perfectly right. You could say the Holy Spirit, who is the protagonist in both volumes, has moved headquarters from the holy city of Jerusalem to the new holy city of Rome. And that, as I said, would make Paul turn in his grave and scream. But that's actually what happened. <laughs> Rome converted. Well, and now, when we make that move then from Jerusalem to Rome, what are some of the consequences? I think that in, in your description of Revelation, the consequence was very simple. Don't have any comportment, don't get involved <laughs> at all with the merchandise of Rome and merchandise in its large sense. What is the outcome? What's the thrust of this logic of Luke Acts then for the reader? Well, the accommodation that each side would ne- would have to make, of course, there's not the slightest hint anywhere in Luke Acts that Caesar could be divine. Of course not. Of course not. So there's a very dangerous thing there. That's why, for example, he's going to spend a lot of time, a lot of time and energy saying that every Roman official who ever met Jesus or Paul gave them carpet. Nothing here worthy of execution. They're having problems, it's true, with their Jewish confreres. They've done nothing against Roman law. So certain accommodations. Now, one of the crucial ones for me, though, that he has to make is he shifts the emphasis from Jesus's emphasis on justice, distributive justice, to distributive charity. And Rome, of course, has no problem with questions of charity, if you want to give, give alms to the poor, of course, that saves their problems. Of course, we're all in favor of charity. Nobody gets crucified. For, you get canonized for charity. You get crucified for justice. Could you line out for my listeners the distinction that you're making there between justice and charity, just to make sure that it's absolutely clear to them? Yeah, because if you're coming, as Jesus was, from the Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets, the insistence is that God is a God of distributive justice, who wants a fair distribution? For example, Leviticus. God says, the land belongs to me. You're all tenant farmers and resident aliens. You mean I don't even own the land? What about capitalism? God says, yeah, you're, you're all stewards of my land. Oh, wait a minute. This is distributive justice. Everyone is supposed to get a fair share of God's world. God's people get God's world. Now, that's justice. It's distributive justice. I'm not talking about punitive justice. I'm talking about distributive justice, a fair distribution of stuff. We would extend it, of course. We wouldn't talk about land. We might talk about education, health, and everything else. So a fair distribution. Now, that's justice. It's The whole Torah is built around it. The prophet spent 500 years saying, you ain't doing it. <laughs> now, charity is almsgiving. It's, it's a very different thing. If you looked at the Good Samaritan parable, what he does, you could say, is important almsgiving, charity. But if somebody said, how come there's so many bandits on that road? That might raise the question of justice. What about in the Roman Pax Romana, we have bandits all along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably young males who have the job. So justice raises questions that immediately speak directly to your government. Is everyone getting a fair share of stuff? It's a very very simple concept. Now, charity means when they don't get a fair share of stuff, we fix them up. If I'm hearing correctly, then this shift from justice to charity in Luke Acts, the author of Luke Acts is making an accommodation to Rome and is not drawing that strong challenge of you have to step away from Rome, but is instead saying there are ways that we can begin to acculturate ourselves. There are ways that we can begin to, your word is to canonize this Roman economy and this Roman culture that we see. Talk to us about that canonization process then. Well, Canonization, I don't mean, obviously, in the official sense, to accept it as the norm of the world, to to take it for granted that we will be now Roman Christianity, not Jewish Christianity. And in one sense, 
if you've been really working through the whole Old Testament, the prophet is always talking back to the king. <laughs> That's why prophets end up dead very often. <laughs> uh, so you have that tradition that government, if you want to put it, the king, is always not quite on the same path as the, the prophet. And that's a tension built into there. And the question then is whether the priest is on the side of the prophet or the king. So that leads all the way into the New Testament, into the New Testament. Otherwise, these people would not die. Nobody died for charity or for advocating charity or even for insisting on charity in the Roman Empire. They really didn't. My aphorism is you get canonized for charity, you get crucified for justice, for insisting on justice. So that's part of the deal. You can see it, for example, if you go to, in the fourth century, if you went to a place like Ravenna, you can see what's the job of the emperor to build big churches and he's carrying his donations. He's carrying his box of precious stuff to give to the church. And some of that would certainly go to the poor, of course, of course. The church is running poor houses for the poor and that, of course. But that's charity. I know it's also to sound like you're attacking charity. I'm not, but I'm saying that charity is not the same as justice. And it cannot be used to, how would I put it, to support or to justify injustice. It cannot be done. It, it should be a remedy for emergency. It should not be the normalcy of life or the normalcy of civilization. And if the normalcy of civilization is built on charity, there's something wrong with civilization. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Dominic Crossan. He's Professor Emeritus at DePaul University and is widely regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He's the author of numerous best-selling books, including How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, The Historical Jesus, God and Empire, and Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography. We're talking today about his most recent book, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with John Dominic Crossan, Professor Emeritus at DePaul University and widely regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He's the author of several best-selling books, including How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, The Historical Jesus, God and Empire, and Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography. Today we're talking about his recent book, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. I want to turn now to the third section of your book, Render Unto Caesar. And for those that have just joined us, in the first parts of the book, you look at two models of reading this question of the relationship of faith and culture through two different New Testament lenses, the book of Revelation, which preaches for complete separation of faith and culture, and the books of Luke-Acts, which talk about a kind of accommodation of faith and culture. And so in your third move, you make the claim that we shouldn't necessarily go to the New Testament as our starting point for another model, because we've already seen that the New Testament is presented us with contradictory models. And you've begun to talk about this, but you say the logic then is to start extra-canonically, to start outside the New Testament and work our way back in. And so now help my listeners by fleshing out that movement from outside into the New Testament. Take us through that logic. And let me insist, as I mentioned before, this was like a, a temporary therapy. <laughs> I don't want to interpret that you never start with the New Testament you must start with Josephus. Of course not. Though I'm going to say something as an aside, a footnote here. I went to a, a classical boarding school between 1945 and 1950, and I read Roman and Greek classics before I ever got to the New Testament. And I would tell people it's very useful to read Virgin's, Virgin's Aeneid before you get to the New Testament, because then you're used to seeing a human being like Caesar being called God. But that's an aside. My problem was this. It really was a problem. I mean, an honest problem. I was thinking, you know, I get eventually to, to maybe an epilogue about Jesus or something. And then I suddenly realized I'm giving people two contradictory views from the New Testament. What's 
the point I'm going in, I'm producing another one, say, from the Sermon on the Mount. Or, I mean, if you've just shown two, <laughs> as it were, politicians with absolutely contradictory one, a third one is just more of the same. And then if somebody wants to say, well, I'm going with the book of Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. It's the grand finale. It's the climax. It says Christ is coming back and he's got over this peace donkey riding into Jerusalem. He's coming back on a war horse that had to kill. And he doesn't invite me to join the program, I realize, but maybe I might jumpstart the eschaton a bit myself. I mean, that could be horrible. It could be justifying, and it is in the New Testament. So my thought was, I can't just go in there and find a third one, even the historical Jesus, as a therapy. I'm going to begin with Josephus. I'm going to say, could we go outside the New Testament into the first century, staying within Judaism, of course, and take a look at Josephus. Now, by the way, for background, please understand that the Jewish tradition never really cared about Josephus. After the great wars, let's leave Josephus aside. If Christians had not, and I'm talking about Christians as separate from Jews, if they had not taken care of Josephus, we wouldn't have him. We wouldn't have any of his stuff. But what actually happened, I know I'm jumping ahead now, in the Middle Ages, there was a small cottage industry in translating Josephus into Latin, beautiful Latin texts, as beautiful, by the way, as some of the uh, biblical texts, by saying, look, we have the Christian Bible with the Old Testament and the New Testament. Here we have a Jew from the first century telling us the Jewish antiquities, which tells us about the Old Testament, and the Jewish war, which tells us what happened. So we have a parallel proof of our stuff. They, they loved it. There was, I, I don't say hundreds, Latin texts, always in that order, by the way, even though Josephus wrote the war first, antiquities. And they had a vested interest, in a way, in not making too many corrections in his text, as it were. Okay, when it came to G mentioning Christ, they might tweak the text a bit. But they never flooded it with Christian theology, because that would disprove their whole point. So I'm going into Josephus now. I want to know, I want to understand Josephus. I'm not just going in and reading the, the texts that mention Christ. That, that's not the way you do it. I'm going to read all of Josephus, by the way. I first read Josephus, I think, in the 1950s. And what struck me then, when I first read it, by the way, and I didn't know what I was doing half the time. Uh, I was still a student, of course. I thought it was just like Irish history. Everything that the Irish had done with the Roman Empire in terms of betraying one another, colluding, uh, um, uh, everything, terrorism. I was reading the same, including nonviolent resistance. Everything seemed to be in the Jewish war. So I love Josephus for that reason. I thought, I'm at home with this. This is what people do when they're facing an empire. I'm going to lose. Anyway, so I began with Josephus. Now, here's what you have to know about Josephus. He was absolutely theologically committed that God, that's the big G, the Jewish God, had given power to the Roman Empire. He says, you can say he's just, you know, protecting his career if you want. But yeah, he wrote the Jewish war to protect the Romans. He wrote Jewish antiquities to protect the Jews. He's kind of trying to walk a tightrope between worlds. Okay, I'll give him that. But God has given power to the Romans. Don't ever rebel against the Romans. You're rebelling against God. See what happened. That's just, he's quite clear. Furthermore, God has given Roman power to the Flavian dynasty, to this new dynasty. The Judeo-Claudians are all gone after Nero. We now have Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. God has given power to them. And then the great finale, in fact, the Messiah is Vespasian. We thought it would be somebody from the Jewish race would be the Messiah. No, it was somebody in the Jewish race because Vespasian was in Israel <laughs> putting down the Great Rebellion of 66 to 74. Now, what does that leave for Jesus? But he's got the Christ. And he mentions him twice. And once he men mentions that well, he's not really talking about him. He's talking about James of Jerusalem, the other brother of Jesus. And he mentions him as a brother 
of Christ, the one called Christ. Now, wait a minute, Josephus. You got Vespasian as the Messiah, and, and you have Jesus as the Messiah. Christ is just a Greek word for Messiah. You got yourself two Messiahs. Well, that's Jesus. How does he fit into the picture? So then when I read him, when he talks about Jesus, I find, this is the text, that Jesus is crucified for starting a movement, starting a movement, and that lo and behold, says Josephus, the movement still continued afterwards all the time to now. So he tells us that. But he calls him the Christ. But that's the Messiah. So again, he's walking this title. Vespasian is the Messiah, Christ is the Messiah. So I'm focused in very much on this from Josephus. It's crucial for me. Josephus says Jesus was crucified, but his closest followers were not rounded. That is the crucial giveaway because in Roman civil law, if you are a non-violent resistor, that's described as somebody who creates turmoil among the people. Not a violent resistor. Them you crucify and, you know, all of their close followers you can get. Their top lieutenants go in a nice long line. Like Barabbas. Barabbas is in jail along with his top lieutenants, as we know. He's a freedom fighter from the Jewish point. He's a rebel from the Roman side. So when Jesus was crucified, please hear this. And his followers were not rounded up. Not even arrested. That tells me immediately from Pilate's point of view, from Roman law, Jesus was crucified as a non-violent resistor against Roman law and order, against the Romanization. Unpack for us, because you make this turn to nonviolence as a lens for an ethic of reading and how we should read that I think is very important and I want to conclude our conversation with. So help us understand what it means to say that Jesus was crucified as a nonviolent resistor, because you've just collided two categories there. Right. Now, let me go back to something everyone knows. In Mark's gospel, Barabbas is in jail, we know, and he's called a Lestes, or a rebel. And along with him are all those who took part in the resurrection, in the re- insurrection, I almost said resurrection. Now, that would mean his top lieutenants. The Roman way of handling, goes back to Spartacus, is if you have a violent rebel, uh, for example, the first war in 4 BC, uh, the, the re- rebellion in Jerusalem, 2,000 people were crucified in the Great War of 674, 500 a day. Rome's attitude against violence is you grab the top echelon, say, and put them all crucified in a row so everyone gets the message. A row of people all be crucified in resistance. Now, civil law, and I quote from civil law in, in the book, it says, for example, those who create turmoil among the people or who, who excites the people shall, according to their status, either be crucified, thrown to the beasts, or sent to an island. If they're big shot, like, like John of Patmos, but he's sent to an island. So this is Roman civil law about what we would call, we would call that an activist, somebody who excites the people. It's not just talk. <laughs> it's activism. It's not violent, but it's dangerous. It's like the same way today, a person could speak and say something about the government, but then activism, not violent, but activism, out in the streets marching even. That would be something that the Romans would consider worthy of. Who, who is leading that procession in the streets for civil disobedience, right? Execute him. You execute him, that'll finish the movement. And that's why, for example, Josephus has to explain, how come the movement then continued after him? Well, he says, because those who loved him before continue to love him after. He has to explain, when we crucify the leader of a nonviolent movement, that should be the end of the movement. Tacitus also has to explain it by saying that it was an infection and infection spread. <laughs> so I get this from outside the New Testament. If I never had the New Testament, it is a historical conclusion. Other historians might disagree with it, fine, but it's an historical, it's not a theological conclusion. That Jesus was executed for nonviolent resistance to the Romanization of his homeland, to Roman law and order, they would say, by exciting the people. 
You could say actually the same thing, by the way. It happened to John the Baptist. He was executed, but none of his followers are around it though. So that tells me something. Then I go into the New Testament and I say, do I see this Jesus there? Do I see? I, not a nonviolent Jesus. <laughs> Please be very careful. Rome loved nonviolence. <laughs> they give you a medal for nonviolence. <laughs> nonviolent resistance is what we're talking about. So when I read something like, love your enemies, almost the, how would I put it, the iconic phrase from Jesus. And we tend to focus on love. How can I love my enemy? How, maybe I could help him like the Samaritan in the ditch, but, and the Jew in the ditch, but love shifts the emphasis to enemies. Why does Jesus not say love everyone? Including your enemies, but just say everyone. Why focus on enemies? It's almost as if, there will be enemies. There's something you will be opposed to. Call them enemies if you want or whatever. So I consider love your enemies, Jesus's programmatic, iconic statement of nonviolent resistance. And I want to make sure that I understand the logic. So starting outside, looking at Josephus, you say, what is the way that this Jesus figure is described? And what is the way that his death is described? And you get this notion of nonviolent resistance, decapitation of the movement. Let's find the leader of this nonviolent resistance and kill him. And so you then take that model of historical nonviolent resistance, and then you use that almost as a lens to look back at the New Testament and say, and can we use this lens to discern actions of Jesus that match this historical model of nonviolent resistance. Now, all these are my words, not yours. Feel free to correct. Have I gotten it, have I gotten it right, or would you say it in a different way? You did four summaries, David. Okay. I would love if everyone who wrote a review in Amazon gave four summaries like that. Yeah, no, I'm, I know this sounds like I'm just being polite to my interviewer. No, I mean, that summarizes it perfectly. Yeah, and that's the reason. You start outside give you the historical matrix and then say, does Jesus fit into that historical matrix? Or is he going around telling people, no, let's rebel against Rome? No, that makes sense of what Jesus... And it, 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 there's a whole chapter in there I call the invention of nonviolent resistance because I am not positively not saying that Jesus, the good Christian, came along and invent, invented nonviolent resistance while those bad Jews in the time between 4 BCE and 66, the two great revolts, armed, violent revolts, of course, put down violently by the Romans, there was all sorts of experimentation with non-violent resistance. Forget Jesus for a moment. They were doing it. That's what very often you do after one terrible revolt, and when maybe you see an even worse one is coming. You, you're seeking. In the middle of a war, you don't get around to talk about non-violent resistance. You really don't. You're, you're talking about survival. But we have the evidence in Josephus. That's where we get it. And it's marvelous because Josephus writes through gritted teeth. He hates it. He can actually understand violent resistance because people do that. But this non-violent resistance, he doesn't know what to do with it. It's evil. He says, they have purer hands, but in purer hearts. Purer hands, no blood, but in purer hearts, because they're still resisting, but not violently. He keeps coming back to it, and he doesn't know what to do with it. Well, and this is where I want really to land our conversation because it comes up at a couple points as almost throwaway lines throughout your book, Render Unto Caesar. But to me, it was the main takeaway. And you say it early on, you say the only way forward is nonviolent resistance, that we've looked at the model of violence and we know it doesn't work. It doesn't change the world. It just recreates the world of injustice and oppression. We have to look at this model of nonviolent resistance as the only possible model for moving forward. I'm paraphrasing, but again, feel free to restate it, but I'd really love to get your vision for my listeners of the way out of this, the way forward. What does nonviolent resistance gain us for a future? I think it's much, I want to go more profound. This will be the first century. I want to go, I want to go down to evolution. Because the final vision of this book, that's one underneath it, is that 70,000 years ago, our species, Homo sapiens, which is an oxymoron for me, the wise home We came out of Africa and we sort of declared war on the physical world, the animal world, apart from ourselves, and on the human world. 
Uh, and today it has resulted in our climate problems, our species loss of species problems, and of course, warfare. We've got better and better at it to the point that we now endanger ourselves. So I almost see this clash between God, well, I see it, I'm going to say, between God and Caesar as a clash between evolution and civilization. That the pattern of civilization that we've set up for ourselves, what we call civilization across the world, is certainly better than barbarism, but we're always having to imagine post-civilization because we can't sustain our species. I'm talking about species sustainability, not just ethics. How can we sustain our species with what we're doing to the physical world, the animal world, and the human world? We're on a trajectory of escalatory violence. Not just violence like that, but violence that's going like that. So I want us to see that beneath the whole question of nonviolent resistance. Because if something that should be resisted violently is resisted violently, and we all understand that, and it happens. If I'm attacked violently, I'm probably not going to say, okay, I probably will respond. Of course. And nations will do. If they are attacked, they will respond. What I'm looking at is the escalatory violence that threatens evolution. Every time, violence has got better than the last time. We talk now about the possibility of a third world war, and we know exactly it's going to be worse than the second, if it ever happens. So I'm asking an evolutionary question, and I almost paraphrase, with all due respect to Martin Luther King Jr., that it's the evolutionary arc of the universe that tends towards distributive justice, not just the ethical, or it's the ethical because the evolutionary is. So I'm asking a question to our species. And that's why I find that the, the option of nonviolent resistance is the only thing that will make our species sustainable. Because the danger is that violent resistance just escalates every time. Even when you say, well, it has to be done and I agree with it and I don't see any way out that we were attacked, we had to do it. Yes, and the weapons you will use were stronger than the weapons you used the last time. And I don't see that as a su sustainable species. So that's the undercurrent of this whole book, actually. Well, John Dominic Crossan, as always, when I read one of your books, I come away just astonished by all the things I didn't know and all the things I didn't think about with regard to this book, the New Testament, that I've been teaching for 20 years, you always give me fresh eyes. I am so grateful for the time that it must have taken to think about and research and write this book, but I'm especially grateful for the time that you took today to talk about it with me and my listeners. Thank you so very much. Always, David, and any time, I'm glad to talk to you. We've been speaking today with John Dominic Crossan. He's Professor Emeritus at at DePaul University and is widely regarded as the foremost historical Jesus scholar of our time. He's the author of several best-selling books, including How to Read the Bible and Still Be a Christian, The Historical Jesus, God and Empire, and Jesus, a Revolutionary Biography. Today, we've been talking about his recent book, Render Unto Caesar, The Struggle for Christ and Culture in the New Testament. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.
and we're out. Thank you again so much. All right. Listen, David, thank you really. Now, you got to the whole book. I've had very good interviews that never got out of Revelation. Oh, my gosh. Okay. I know. I mean, you know, we get down there and if the questions keep coming, I'm not going to say let's get out of Revelation. I just go with the flow. But to get all four of them in, because otherwise it's just a book about Revelation. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. And your summaries are magnificent. You know. The the, the the book the book is worth reading carefully, and the book is worth considering carefully. I really loved the logic of it, and once I once I understood the logic of it, it became a double joy to read because it was such a smart way to analyze the problem and then attack the problem. And I'm using attack in scare quotes there because yes. I, oh. I think I want to take your your comment about nonviolent uh, resistance to heart. But I really, really loved the book, and I, I hope that I get a chance soon to teach New Testament again, because a couple chapters from this are going to become part of the curriculum that I use with my students. It's interesting, by the way, what you said, because the original title from my editor was The Battle between i said well no 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 with those books <laughs> can we use struggle that's my term i use all the time struggle yeah or, you know, to, to avoid battle more and the, the rest of it 